I'm Sarah Fuller, and you're listening to Beneath the Lights, the Minnesota Aurora FC podcast. Support for this podcast comes from Pence Homes, a real estate team with Keller Williams Classic Realty Northwest. My name is Andrea Lee, and Nate Pence helped me find my first home. During our initial meeting, Nate and I made a checklist of my house must-haves, and just a few weeks later, he had scouted a home for me that met all of them, including, maybe most importantly, a not-creepy basement. In a housing market as wild and unpredictable as ours is, it was comforting to have someone so knowledgeable on my side, especially as a first-time buyer. It felt like a friend guiding me through the process because he sincerely has your best interests in mind. I always recommend me to my friends and now to you. Brianna Scurry, one of the first African-American professional female soccer players, was born in Minneapolis on September 7, 1971. The youngest of nine children, she graduated from Anoka High School in 1989 after winning the state championship her senior year. And then she went on to play at UMass Amherst, ending her collegiate career with 37 shutouts in 65 starts. Then she joined the women's national team. And between 1994 and 2008, she notched 173 caps for the U.S., winning gold at both the 96 Olympics in Atlanta and the 2004 Summer Games in Greece, as well as a World Cup championship in 1999. In December of 2020, Sarah Fuller became the first woman to score in a Power 5 football game. The Vanderbilt women's soccer player suited up to help the football team in the midst of the COVID-19 pandemic and hit both of her kicks— this historical moment coming just weeks after the goalkeeper made three saves in the Commodore's 3-1 win over Arkansas to nab their first SEC championship since 1994. And then on February 7th, 2022, she became the first ever player to sign with Minnesota Aurora FC. On Friday, July 8th, Sarah Fuller sat in a hotel room in Green Bay, Wisconsin, preparing for Minnesota Aurora's last match of the regular season the next day. Across the country, Brianna Scurry sat in a hotel room preparing for her role as an analyst for the CONCACAF women's coverage on CBS Sports. It's been a busy summer for both of the goalkeepers. Sarah's leadership has been an instrumental part of building Minnesota Aurora's dominance on the pitch. And bri has been on the road promoting her new memoir, My Greatest Save, a documentation of her life, career, and the battle with a severe head trauma that left her temporarily totally disabled. It took some work for us to find time for these two busy athletes to connect. And while Brianna wrapped up another interview and we waited for her to join the Zoom call, I took advantage of the time I had one-on-one with Sarah, knowing she'd have to leave soon for team practice. That also gave me some one-on-one time with Bri to talk about her book, her legacy, and what she sees for herself moving forward. It was truly an honor to be there as these two trailblazers met and connected over the sport they love. And I hope you enjoy their conversation as much as I did. Sarah, I'm curious, when you look back at the season, what stands out as the biggest highlight for you? I guess, like, looking back on this season, it's been more than I could have ever imagined. My teammates, the coaching staff... Obviously, the fans, the thousands of fans we have that show up to our games and support us. When I agreed to come to Minnesota for the summer, I never expected it to be this big and be treated 
in, in such a professional way in such an, a professional environment. And I'm just really grateful for that. Uh, and I'm so like grateful for all the friendships I've made. Um, this is the best team I've ever played on in terms of just like, obviously our, our level of play and skill, but just the connection that we have. And I feel like everybody gets along so well. And, you know, I was thinking about it like 20 years from now, what am I going to think back on? And I'm going to think back on this summer and how, um, how just amazing this whole experience has been for me. And I hope for my teammates as well. And of course the fans. So I'm wondering if anyone's told you the story of how during the coach's search, Nicole brought up signing you as one of the things she wanted to pursue if she were chosen as head coach. I had known that they were like interested in me. Um, I don't guess I know the, like the whole story behind it though, uh, if there is one. It's actually very cute. Is it? <laughs> so I could tell it, but I can actually do a little bit better because I have founder Matt Provrotsky and team president Andrea Yock sharing this story earlier this spring before the season even started. The origination of that idea is when we were doing our, our head coach hiring process all of us sat down with Nicole, who now is our head coach, Nicole Lukic. And we were chatting with her in person. And she did a follow-up email the way candidates regularly do a follow-up email. But for hers, she sort of wanted to put her her stamp on the club and said, if you hire me here, here are three players I would go after. And I don't, honestly, I don't remember who the other two were because because <laughs> what other names are going to stick out? <laughs> but in her email, she said, Sarah Fuller, we're going to go after her. I think she would be a great first player for the club to sign. And she said that before she was even the head coach. And so that was her being willing to put like put that in the ground of like she's going to go after Sarah Fuller. And I don't know that she had any previous relationship. She did not. So then fast forward six weeks to Friday night. My kids are home over Christmas break. My phone rings. It's like 8 o'clock and it's Nicole. And I'm thinking, oh, God, something terrible is going to happen. And now I'm really going to regret being the team president. And so I said to the kids, I'm so sorry. We're watching Alfred Hitchcock and, you know, a big moment. And I'm like, you guys, we have to pause. And so I say, hey, Nicole, like, is everything okay? And she's like, yeah, she's like, I'm so sorry to interrupt, but I need to talk to you about Sarah Fuller. And my first thought was like, wow, she was serious. Like when it was in her email, I was like, that's super cute. And I, and I, res I respect her ambition because I'm ambitious. And so I was like, I love the big thinking, never in a million years thinking this is a real thing. And she said, I just got off the phone with her agent and he needs to talk to you. You know, he's got questions about the club and he wants to make sure this is real and he wants to make sure that there's some NIL money. And she's like, so I'm going to give him your number and he's going to call you tomorrow. And the, and so I got off the phone and my boys were like, what was that about? And I said, I think we're getting Sarah Fuller. <laughs> and that was, it was just, such a big moment. That's really cool. And I remember getting the the email from my agent saying like, hey, this is a good opportunity for you. Like, why don't you take a look at this? And I was like, wait, that looks like so much fun. And the fact that it was like community owned the way like the fundraising and everything had gone. I just, I felt like there was a lot of pride around the team. And, you know, hearing that, that's really cool. It's probably one of the best decisions ever made <laughs> being on this team. So, Your parents came to the home opener back in May, and your mom mentioned that she was blown away by how many fans were waiting for the gates to open. That She said something like, we've never had to wait in line to get into our daughter's matches before. Yeah, yeah. No, they were, I mean, 
it's really cool to see my parents be able to come out and enjoy that atmosphere and, and see me get to play at such an elite level. Obviously they, they went to like all the football games and everything that uh, I was involved in and played in. And they seem a million times more impressed by (laughs) Aurora than, than anything. So it just means a lot to me that they can go out and have a good time and, and be impressed by everything. Yeah. Having to wait in line to get merch and, and, you know, get a, get a thing of water just cause it's so packed. Um, I think is is really, really impressive, honestly. I want to go back to your time in college. I want to know what it was like in those initial days after you became the first woman to score in a power five football game. When all of a sudden you were the talk of the sports world, have to imagine that that comes with a lot of highs and some lows. How did you manage all of that? And what did you feel in those initial moments? Yeah, I mean, obviously, I think the SEC championship was one of my proudest accomplishments. Obviously, soccer is my sport. It's what I've put my whole life and time and effort into. So I was, you know, incredibly proud of that. And so with all the football stuff, you know, I I didn't think much of it. I I tell this a lot, but I was a little naive to the fact that it was going to be such a big deal. You know, I just wanted to help out my friends. I I know a lot of the guys on the team and uh, wanted to help out the other team. And so, um, you know, I didn't I didn't think much of it. And I guess, yeah, it was a bit of frustration at times because I was all of a sudden known for football, which I had played for four days. Uh, compared to, you know, soccer where I played it, uh, what, like 20 years. So, (laughs) um, uh, so there was a bit of that where it was like a a little bit of an identity crisis, but also I felt like this huge responsibility of like, okay, I am being put front and center and there are a lot of eyes on me and I want to make sure that I am a good example and that I'm showing girls what is possible, what they're capable of. Cause I think that's just an incredible message. And, you know, I grew up obviously watching like the national team do incredible things. And so just to be able to be put in that position, I felt a lot of responsibility in regards to that. Going back to this like Aurora thing, it's really cool that I can walk around Minneapolis and people are like, Hey, good game. Or like, Hey, congrats on, you know, winning the division. It's, it's not all the time. It's not, oh, you're the kicker. It's like, oh, you're my favorite goalkeeper, which is really cool because that's obviously, you know, that's my sport. That's what I'm passionate about. Your emotional intelligence, I mean, just how you handle yourself, it's so impressive. I mean, I'm, I'm constantly amazed at how people handle moments of pressure and moments of diversity. And I think a lot of us are kind of uncertain of how we would handle ourselves in those situations. And that fear can totally hold us back. And you have just handled all of it with such grace. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I also had to like finish school. <laughs> I was still taking finals uh, when all the football stuff was happening. And, you know, I think I had a really great support system around me. Um, my boyfriend, my parents, my sister, my my best friends are constantly checking in on me. You know, I run everything by them still to this day, I I constantly, if I have to make a big decision, it goes through all those people before I decide it. So I, you know, owe it to them for, for being my support system and, and helping me through all those things because yeah, I mean, like it, it was a great opportunity and 
you know, I I'm very thankful for it and everything, but there were some tough times and I had to learn how to navigate all the trolls on the internet and all that stuff. So in the attention, so I appreciate them for keeping me grounded in that sense. It's also a great reminder to never read the comments. <laughs> yes, yes, that is true. <laughs> I had to learn that. <laughs> Hello. Hi. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm going to let you two just chat and I will jump in at the end if there are any questions or topics I want to make sure we get to. Well, I'm Sir Fuller the first woman to play and score in a power five football game. And then also, you know, soccer player, goalkeeper as well. <laughs> so it's, it, yay, goalkeepers. Awesome. Yes. It's really, really great to meet you. It's an honor. Oh, and you too. Congratulations. It's an honor for me to meet you as well. Way to, way to blaze that trail, girl. Way to blaze <laughs> you it. You as well. Oh my gosh. I know, right? <laughs> yes, you are. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love that. That's like one of my favorite things of all of this happening is all the amazing women I've been able to meet because of it. Mm -hmm. So, and yeah. I was reading a little bit of the people who like commented on your book and it was like Billie Jean King and Abby Wambach. And I was like, yeah. like <laughs> all those people are amazing <laughs> as well. <laughs> oh, so. yes, they are definitely, especially Billie Jean King. I mean, she's been blazing for her whole life and still continues, even though she's I think in her late seventies, at least she's still doing, doing a lot of stuff, very active, very, yeah. very helpful. No. And she was, she was kind to me as well. Like she was messaging me after everything. And I was like, you, you took the time out of your day to, <laughs> to message me. So yeah, she's something else, isn't she? She's a treasure for sure. Yeah. That's amazing. Oh my gosh. But I just want to know about your like goalkeeping experiences. Like how is it playing on like that big of stage because we're just now playing in front of like six thousand people which i think is obviously incredible you were playing in front of the whole world that's that's amazing yeah it's it's interesting though because when when um i'm sure you have the same experience when you're playing you're just i i never was really paying attention to the crowd i was so focused on what i needed to do because we had sports psychologists and one of the things that i was really into was the mindset and the, the sports psychology piece, which is literally two to three percent of of your of your game and of who you are, and so just trying to make sure that I was all focused on what I needed to do for that game, the keys and my teammates and positioning and all of that stuff, and just doing the best I could and and trying to perform well. And I figured everything else would take care of itself if we did that. And so I never really worried about how many people were watching, but I knew. You know, obviously, especially in the Olympics and World Cups, when, you know, when the stands were full, you know, tens of thousands of people watching, it's a lot of people, but like in the, in the Rose Bowl in 99 at the, at the final 90,000 people, I mean, I was completely focused on just, just the game because part of what I thought was if I don't focus completely on what I need to do, then I'm going to regret something that I didn't have my all and bring my all to the event. And we obviously wanted to win, but we wouldn't, we didn't have that pressure. I didn't use that as pressure. Like I never saw pressure or felt pressure. I just, you know, was excited to, to be my best. And I, I harnessed pressure is what I did. And so just going out there and doing my thing and, and playing to, to the best of my ability, I knew I was capable. And so I just really didn't let that seep in because 
it, it can it can be a, a big weight. <laughs> you get, get crushed underneath, right? You know, you know what I'm talking about. Oh, no, for sure. Like people always ask, how did you stay focused when I played football and doing the kick and stuff? And I was like, honestly, I thought about SpongeBob. It was the most like random thing ever, but it it kept my mind off the fact that like so many people were watching. <laughs> right. Isn't that interesting? Yeah, it's it's so funny. Do you have like any broken fingers? I got like a nice broken pinky right there. I have a knuckle. There's like a bump right there because I had my hands out and I was trying to get up and one of my teammates stepped her her cleat on that knuckle and basically it just went <laughs> Oh goodness. Oh. Yeah. I'm glad we can like <laughs> bond over our broken fingers <laughs> bro yeah but my hand are your hands enormous too my hands are so big okay so this is like a sad secret about me but i have really small hands <laughs> you have small hands <laughs> and i'm 6'1 and they're tiny they're so small you have tiny little hands <laughs> i have tiny hands yes i do which is so embarrassing and i'm a goalkeeper but i make it work so <laughs> well the 6'1 helps i'm sure a little bit. Yeah, yeah, that does help. <laughs> That's awesome. Oh. I want to know, like, what was your most memorable soccer experience? It doesn't have to be, like, a game necessarily, but what was the most memorable thing you can think of? Well, there's a few of them. Like, in the 99 World Cup, the first game, we were playing a giant stadium. We had sold it out, like, 76,000 people. And... We were on our way to the game and, you know, you get there early. You go to the game early, um, like 90, 90 minutes to two hours in advance. And we were having a really difficult time getting there because there was so much traffic and we were being escorted, police escort. So we drove like on the shoulders and stuff. But like we were all like, what, are, what, what is all this traffic for? Like, what's going on? Is there another game going on out here? Because in Meadowlands, there's a couple of facilities together. So we thought that some other New York team was having a game, but it was the traffic for us. Oh, God. <laughs> because we didn't we, we didn't we didn't think people would be there that early we're talking yeah. like two hours before the kickoff and people were out there they were tailgating in the in the parking lot their little girls had their faces painted and they had the um their windows all all like signs and writing on the windows go usa and all this stuff and and so that was one of my best memories because we were so cool in the bus. We were like, you know, we were the team they were here to see, but we were all like, hi, like, <laughs> waving to them out the bus window, you know, taking pictures of them. They were taking yeah. pictures of us. We were just so exciting. And then, so that experience was really cool. And then, you know, how you go through the tunnel, then there's like an overhang and you come out and then you see everything you can't see it. And then you come out and it's like just people and like all these camera flashes in the daytime and then the crowd noise, it's like a disjointed, like, no, 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 you know what I mean? But when you come out, everybody's like, yeah, it was like a, like a thunder, thunderous, like, like rising of sound. And it was just so cool that we were all like either smiling our, our, our faces off or we were crying because we, we had been selling our world cup for two years before that. And then it was finally the day was here to do the thing. And we came out of that stadium and oh my goodness. Like it was all we could do to just keep composure. Like we were all literally crying, walking out there because we were finally doing it. And that's the stuff I remember the most. It's not even really the game. It's the emotions and, and, and whatnot around it or 
or when we were just trying to win a game that we we shouldn't have won, for example, against Brazil in the mm-hmm. semifinal, they were way better. I had like seven saves that game, which is way too many. <laughs> As you know, it's a lot. <laughs> that means things are going really wrong if the goalkeeper's really busy. Yes. Yes. <laughs> but like that was like one of the best games I'd had. And um just feeling good about being able to do my part. You know what I mean? Like you're not always called upon, especially on the national team when, you know, the team is really good, obviously, and other countries are great too. But defensively, we normally handle everything without me having to make all these saves. But that particular game, we were really flat and we, we were, we were bad. Like we were bad that game. And I just had all these saves and it was, I was just happy that I could do my part to earn, to earn my, earn my keep being there, you know? That's so cool. Yeah. And that's the stuff I remember. Like it's the emotional stuff, you know, yeah. the feeling space, being on a team, being with the girls, um, you know, at that hotel, like hanging out and yeah, <laughs> and all that kind of stuff is what I remember most. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, I grew up watching the US women's national team, obviously, and I just remember like watching the games, being so excited. I remember distinctly Carly Lloyd's goal from midfield. That one like hits every time. I bring it up all the time. I'm like, that was the coolest thing ever. But just like growing up and in that environment where like seeing women just succeed and that was just the norm, I think it was huge for me. And I remember growing up telling my like grandparents, I was like, yeah, I want to be on the national team one day. And they're like, oh, maybe you should have more like realistic job or something. And I was like, no, I feel like I can like... (laughs) (laughs) I feel like I can do this. And then, you know, I go out and do all these, like I play football and I do all these crazy things and I'm playing on this amazing pre-professional team. So it's, you know, I just, I feel like it's actually possible now. And it clearly we have a lot of work to do, but uh, I think we're getting there. Um, and, And talking to the women who, you know, were there when title nine, like just began or they fought to get title nine into place was just, it's great. I need to watch the, the ESPN special. I mean, my boyfriend, I was, he was like, we, we're going to watch this documentary. And I was like, fine, but we have to watch the the title nine documentary together. Yes. And then good for you. <laughs> and he was like, isn't that like a three part thing? And I was like, yep, we're going to watch all of it. <laughs> the whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> so Yeah. <laughs> So it's so funny that you mentioned Carly Lloyd because she actually was in the stands at the game that I mentioned that when all the the fans were there early. She, I think she was like nine or 12 or whatever age she was, but she was there. Yeah. Oh my goodness. <laughs> and then now, and then now she's inspiring you. Isn't that neat? Yes. When I look back and, and when I talk to people, it's just so rewarding, you know, looking back on it, being being able to have been a part of the women's national team in soccer is is such an amazing thing. It's such a blessing. And the legacy of this team, not just in our country, but internationally, is just so solid. And we've been winning for a very long time and we're still winning, which is why it's so neat, because there's a there's a, a passing of the baton that occurs that that's happening right now as we speak, essentially, because they're, they're in qualifying and, and Alex Morgan and Megan Rapino and Becky Sauerbrunn are the, are the old hands now. And they were once the young hands. And so they're teaching the, the, the current generation, how, how we do things. And, um, 
and it's it's not just on the pitch it's off it's both things it's elevating the game it's elevating women it's all these things not just in our country but in the world and so it's really fun to see and talk to people who uh, are inspired by or have been inspired by that in some way and now are doing their own inspirational things and then, and I'm really a, a big believer in how having inspiration and having it nurtured and to to see what it grows into through that person it's just really really neat to see it and I just I, I love it uh, that legacy is, is still going on and, and it will go on way past me way beyond me and it's really why it's so neat because it does that I'd love to hear how you both became goalkeepers. Bri, you actually, you tell the story in your book and I think it's so great. And I don't want to say anything else because I don't want to ruin anything. So my beginning in the goal was I was on my first year playing. I was 12 years old. So I got a late start, according to most people nowadays who start at three and four and five. Um, I was the only girl on the boys team in my small little rural town of Dayton, it was the two towns, Champlain and Dayton were together. So they combined, it was uh, Champlain Dayton athletic association and they didn't have a girl's team. And so I was on the boys team, the only girl on the boys team. And the coach thought it would be a great idea to keep me safe, to put me in goal. What? <laughs> and we all know that's the opposite. It's opposite. It's actually really, really dangerous <laughs> to play goalie. And so he put me in there and I loved it. And then I, the next year I decided to play again. And I played on the girls team this year because they created the girls teams finally. And then I played in, I ran in the field. I played forward a little bit. So the next two years I did both. I, I mostly forward and then some in the goal too. And then when I was about 15 or 16 years old, I went back to the goal because I liked the idea of being able to stop the other team from winning. That's why I went back. I love that. <laughs> yeah. And and most people think it's absurd. Like Julie Foudy, um, I have a documentary coming out called The Only on July 12th from uh, Paramount Plus and CBS. Awesome. And she says in the documentary, she's like, you know, those goalies, they're a little crazy. She, I think she said that crazy was actually what she said. <laughs> I was like, thanks, Jules. That's awesome. But it's true. We're an acquired taste. As you know. Yes. So yeah, that's that's how I started. That's so great. Yeah. My goalkeeper coach growing up said that goalkeepers are always very attractive and <laughs> very crazy. That was there it. it is. <laughs> Those are the qualifications <laughs> to be a goalkeeper. <laughs> we're good looking <laughs> and we're crazy. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. No, I, I started uh, doing goalkeeping. I guess I was... Mm -hmm probably 10 when my like rec soccer coach was like, Oh, we're putting you in goal. And I thought it was like a punishment. Um, I didn't like it. Cause I played midfield. I was a midfielder and I would score all the time. And I was like, why, why are you doing this to me? So I ended up just deciding to like take a year off from soccer. Like when I was 10, I was like, I'm done with this. And then my little sister started playing soccer and oh. I got jealous that she was playing soccer. So I was like, okay, I want to play again. And then I had a friend reach out because uh, they needed a goalie mm. for their indoor team. And I was like, oh, okay, I'll do it, whatever. Never really, you know, never done goalie in like a right. serious like situation, but this was like a mm -hmm. nicer club team. So I go in, I play with them. Uh, we end up making it to the finals and it goes to PKs and I save every single PK. And <laughs> <laughs> Wow. 
like, okay, thanks guys. And then um, the coach was like, uh-uh, no, no, you have a spot on the team. And I was like, really? And they're like, yeah, you're going to be our goalkeeper <laughs> on like real soccer, like, in, well, you know, like outdoor soccer. And I was like, okay. So then I just, you know, I actually started taking lessons and I was my goalkeeper coach who I'm still, you know, very close with to this day. And, you know, they taught me how to be fearless. And I guess, you know, that's not really taught. It's just in us. It's in you. Right. I, like it's, it's already there, but they, right. yeah, but they like, you know, bring it out of you and, and teach you the skills and, and how to do it. I just love like, yeah, it's like a game of chess, you know, I'm always proud if I don't have to make a save by the end of the day, you know? Exactly. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> that's that's always frustrating to me. Trying to explain this on the broadcast. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Like I, I it's frustrating because they're like, oh, this is this person's like the best keeper in the league or something. I'm like, oh, they've had to make like 300 saves this season. That's not a good thing. <laughs> like <laughs> It's not good. <laughs> Let me explain this to you. <laughs> bad. More saves bad. <laughs> Less saves good. <laughs> yes. I totally get it. I know. I totally get it. Exactly. So, oh my God, it's so nice to talk to someone who gets it. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I know. <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> Seriously, my cheeks hurt from smiling. Like this has been so much fun to sit in on. And Sarah, I know uh, you have to get going. Yes. I'm sorry. I do have to have to practice. Thank you so much for making time for us in, in a very busy weekend. Thank you guys. Thank you, Sarah. So great to meet you. So great to meet you as well. Hope you have continued success. You obviously know exactly how to do that. My name is Matt, and my partner and I bought our first home with Nate and Pence Homes. What I loved about working with Nate was that he listened. We loved doing our own research on homes, and Nate not only heard us out, but made great suggestions as well, including the wonderful home we bought. We never felt dismissed, patronized, ignored, or lied to. We've made many referrals already and will continue to do so. We'd recommend Nate and Pence Homes to anyone looking to buy or sell in the Twin Cities. Bri, I've been diving into your book, and I love how it brings together your life as an athlete, because that's what you're known for. But it also ties in so much of your childhood growing up here in Minnesota. And one of the stories you told was about the 1980 Olympic Games in Lake Placid. It's you know the one every hockey fan, every American knows, the miracle on ice. And you tell the story about watching it as a little girl and all the feelings and, and dreams that it brought up for you. Yeah. So I, um, I was sitting on the couch with my mom and dad on either side, and we were watching the 1980 Lake Placid ice hockey team play the USSR. And even as an eight-year-old girl, um, you see, you can, children can see greatness when it's in front of them. And I knew that the team had played them earlier and just got absolutely shellacked. And I was really excited to see this game. And I saw just the guys skating around, just coming together. And Jim Craig had the game of his life, clearly. 
And he, he seemed like he was truly inspired in his play. And I felt that, and I saw that, and I saw the team do the impossible made possible. And after the end of the game, you know, Al Michaels is like, do you believe in miracles? And I'm like, yes. And I jumped off the couch and I was like, I want to be an Olympian. And it was so neat because my parents, they didn't think it was silly. They didn't poo-poo it. They didn't say you need to be more realistic. They, what they did say was, yes, honey, you can be anything you set your mind to. You can do it. You can set a goal, you know, achieve that goal. Um, they nurtured that seed of inspiration that I had that day and that seed grew and they watered it and they gave it sunshine and they gave it support. And throughout the years, you know, they were always saying yes to me. I mean, it was very rare. They said no. Hockey was actually the only sport they said no to, ironically or not, because they said, you know, there's sticks and there's blades and it's dangerous. And so we don't want you to do that. But they let me play tackle football in fourth and fifth grade. And so, and I loved it. Absolutely loved it. So my parents were so awesome. They, they truly believed in me. I, I, I really wish I had asked them more about their thought process about when I was younger. Um, but unfortunately I didn't get old enough an adult enough to realize I should ask them these questions before they passed. But in the, in the process of writing my book, I have all these questions for them about their parenting, about why they chose certain things that they did, about their philosophy, about me and about them and, and what they saw. What did they see in me at such a young age? I mean, I know I was really athletic, but they saw something special and they nurtured it and they were really awesome. They were willing to not force me in any direction, but they let me lead in whatever the direction was. And then they guided me as I, as I was leading and they always had that approach. It, it was very rare that they said no to me about, about much of anything. And they trusted me about what I wanted to do. And I often wonder, you know, why they decided to trust me. And I'm so grateful that they did. You've dealt with your fair share of adversity, not just as an athlete, but as a human being. And you touch on a lot of it in the book. How therapeutic was it for you to go through some of those moments, especially with your injury and then the darkness that came with it? Because, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it kind of appears like you're going through this rebirth. You know, you have these really dark moments and then you've taken what you've learned from it and you've grown with it. Yeah, exactly right. It's a rebirth. I talk about myself as a, as a bamboo tree. And if you know the history of bamboo trees and how they grow, they, they grow the root system first and then they shoot out of the ground. And I feel like right now I'm shooting out of the ground. We've, we've built the root system. We meaning myself, my amazing wife and my publicist, Patrick, um, together doing that now. And here we are with the, with the book, with a documentary, I'm broadcasting now, I'm being, you know, doing all these amazing things. This is my year of essentially rebirth of 2022 of all the work coming before it. You're right. The, the concussion was very dark period of my life and, and so many horrible things and feelings around that. But when I was thinking about writing the book, I had to really sit down with the idea of truly telling the story, all of them. And not just the fun ones and the pleasant ones. I didn't want to write a a, a, a foofy, unrealistic, un, unbelievable book that was only sunshine and roses. Because it's not how life is. It's not how my life was. 
And I really wanted to go into those rooms of my life, like you said, where there's darkness and pain and put light in there. And so the whole process of writing this book has been very cathartic. It's helped me forgive areas of my life that I hadn't. It helped me go there and, and mend some emotional distraught and some damage and some some angst and some feelings that I hadn't dealt with. And it really was awesome and, and, and actually really helped me forgive a lot of different people in my life, including myself. Your brain injury left you temporarily totally disabled. And so often with invisible injuries, especially concussions, we hear about the ebbs and the flows of it. Like it can be all over the place and you never know what to expect. And you can take 10 steps forward and then suddenly take 30 steps back. And I'm curious how you dealt with that during your recovery. There's your health, of course, but your injury also came with financial ruin. How do you get out of that? Yeah, it was literally like a miracle that I got out of it because it was exactly what you said, 10 steps forward, 30 steps back. Like I would have a situation where I would have to go to court for certain things. I went like five or six times over the course of the three-year period to get things from the insurance company that I was owed and that they didn't want to pay. And I would win a court battle. So that would be a step forward. And then they would be um, required and mandated to do certain thing, depending on what that battle was about. For example, a second opinion from a doctor, I fought to get that. And then they would try to demand who that doctor was. And I was steadfast and resistant to letting them dictate anything to me. And my lawyers, thank goodness, were on board with me too. And so all these steps forward and then backwards. So basically, it was a, a continual downward spiral slide downward. Even though I would make feel like I'd make progress some days, and then I would be drugged back out to sea again, and then I would come up and thinking I was going to breathe, and then get drugged back under again. And so eventually, the progress is backwards and downward. And so I got to a point where I was suicidal for a good part of 2013. And when I started actually contemplating how, that's when I knew I was in big trouble. And among the couple of ways I thought about it was there was a falls by my house. I thought about jumping over and I can't swim. And so I knew I would drown. And literally right after that thought came another thought of my mother, who was dealing with Alzheimer's at the time having somebody have to notify her that her baby was gone. That image got me stable, got me off the ledge. And then shortly after that, I was thrown a lifeline. And it's, it's a, a miracle that I didn't do, but was done for me by my friend Naomi, who spoke to a woman who was Krissa, who became my wife later and asked her for her help because she owns a PR firm. And Naomi thought she might be able to put some pressure on the insurance company to give me that experimental procedure that I needed that they were resisting paying for. And Krissa said yes to helping. And she talked to me, then she talked to my lawyers, and they decided that the lawyer would go to the insurance company and say, look, we have a PR firm who's going to put out some not so nice press about you that you're not doing the right thing by a two-time Olympic champion, World Cup medical medalist, and that you're not doing the right thing. And you do, I don't think you want that kind of heat. And they didn't. So they completely folded. I got my procedure. 
immediately felt relief from the headaches I was feeling from, from behind my neck. That was the first step. Then a year, a whole year of therapy after that, and they paid for all of it. And so that's what got me out of it. So originally the first step was getting off the ledge from thinking about my mom and then actually having physical medical procedures done and therapy for a year for all the things that were wrong. And then that's how I got out of it. And my story is a love story because that woman who helped me ended up being my wife later on. Oh man. And to think, I mean, you had to go through all of that for this to happen. Right. Without it, I don't have her. And that's the truth. I was asked this the other day, and I think for people on a journey like yours, it's it's such an important thing to stop and think about. I'm wondering what is bringing you joy these days? The love of my wife is bringing me joy. The support and all the amazing responses to people who read my book are bringing me joy. If you just read it, you'll love it. And then I've been told that so many times. The fact that I'm finally finished with it and essentially birthing it into the world now is bringing me joy. Being able to do all these things at, that I'm doing right now at the same time is not even something I could comprehend doing in 2013 when I was at my depths of, of pain and sorrow. And that's bringing me joy that I can, I've come so far. And that I know that at some point for everyone who reads my book, at some point when you're reading it, you will see yourself in my story. Whether it's something that you weren't willing to believe or to discuss with your friends and family, if it's something that you're battling on your own, or even if you are at the top of your game and you will see yourself in my journey um, to the World Cups, to the Olympic Games, to all these amazing things I've done, you will see yourself in there somewhere. And that brings me joy as well. Thanks to Sarah Fuller and Brianna Scurry for joining us on Beneath the Lights, the Minnesota Aurora FC podcast. My Greatest Save is available wherever you buy books and the audio version is available through Audible as well. Her documentary, The Only, is available July 12th on Paramount+. Plus. For more information on Minnesota Aurora FC and to buy the latest merchandise, you can head to mnaurora.com. Support for this podcast comes from Pence Homes, a real estate team with Keller Williams Classic Realty Northwest. And finally, a shout out to Big Quarters for providing us with music for the podcast. My name is Lindsay Gensel. This podcast was created with the help of Wes Burdine and Corey Shreffold.